Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, novelist Christopher Bolan returns to Little Atoms to talk about his latest book, The Destroyers. Christopher Bolan is a novelist and journalist who writes about art, literature and culture and is editor-at-large at Interview magazine. He's also the author of the acclaimed novels Lightning People and Orient, which listeners may recall we talked about on a previous Little Atoms, and his new novel, The Destroyers, we're going to talk about today. Chris, welcome back. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about The Destroyers. What's the idea? Well, I think, you know, this is my third novel, so I think I can finally sort of make some summaries about my writing style. And I think that I've, what I, one thing I realize is that I'm a, really a place writer. So much of the story gets built out of the location of where I'm setting it. So this book, The Destroyers, is set on a Greek island called Patmos, which is probably most well known for being the island where John wrote the book of Revelation in AD 95. Um, and that's how I first knew of it, because I went to Catholic school growing up. And as a, you know, a boy who had to read the Bible for school, you're always obsessed with Revelation, because it's like the exciting book at the very end, you know, where everything gets destroyed, the end of the world sort of fantasies. So yeah, that was so I knew that island just from that. And then when I was um, kind of in the world of magazines and art and fashion and culture, I started hearing about Patmos is this island that like sort of jet set euros went to in summer and how beautiful it was. And I could not, I couldn't understand how these two realities of being like this new Christian end of the world birthplace of Armageddon and also this sort of hedonistic summer vacation spot all existed in one uh, island. And so eventually I went in 2011 and I just found it so fascinating that I had to write a book set there. So the title of The Destroyers um, refers partly to a game that our two main characters played as children. Where does this game come from? Because it seems, it seems too well thought through not to have been something you did yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, you know, I think that people are either game players or they're not. And I'm beginning to believe that it's actually sort of cultivated in you really young uh, from your family. So if your family played board games, you're much more inclined to play as an adult. Uh, I know tons of people who never played board games as kids and they can't stand the idea of it. I love games and I always played them. So like, I come from a family of game players 
card players, puzzle players. But yeah, this game, The Destroyers, was like the sort of uh, sort of like a fantasy game between two best friends, Ian and Charlie, in the book. And sort of one of them, just, you know, describes a scenario where a bunch of gunmen and uh, come into a room, and then and they know the outlines of these buildings. They know the layout, sorry, of these buildings really well, and so they sort of try to find a ways of escape. And it is sort of similar to a game I played uh, with a friend when I was in like uh, 6th and 7th grade or, you know, like 11 and 12, where we would actually get like maps to like museums and this like, you know, the, the they give you guides and there's actual maps and we would sort of come up with these horror narratives and try to like, find escape routes. So there, is, so there is some there is some connection to my own uh, sort of gruesome childhood imagination. But I was, but I loved games. I could play Clue by myself as a kid. And that is, you know, it's very hard to play Clue alone. Or indeed with a group of people. (laughs) Even with a group of people, it's trying. But I try to play it alone. It's almost impossible. Yet I found a way. So I was always kind of coming up with games on games. So let's talk about some of the characters. We'll start with Ian Bledsoe, who's a narrator. Who is he? Well, Ian is, you know, Ian and Charlie are both uh, sort of New Yorkers by birth, and they're both from wealth. Although the differences in their family wealth is quite phenomenal in the sense that Ian comes from a father who works as uh, vice president of a baby food manufacturing company. And they make a lot of money, but it's sort of like millionaire wealth. And then Charlie is from like billionaire construction empire wealth from the Middle East. So I wanted to show that like even within the sort of bracket of elitism and privilege, there's still like sort of a wide gap between, you know, amounts of money. So anyway, they're, they're born with privilege. They're born wealthy. They're born spoiled. Um, I had never really written about money before, so it was kind of an opportunity to write about inherited wealth, which I find so interesting as someone who doesn't have inherited wealth. Ian is kind of a do-gooder who, who through a series of bad choices and situations has been black sort of listed from his family and friends and can't get a job and a sort of internet infamous in a small way that like keeps him from being able to find any employment. His family's sort of abandoned him. And he does what I think anyone would do, which is sort of reaches out to his childhood best friend for help. And Charlie is now living half the year on this island of Patmos in summer. It's summer. It's August. And he invites Ian to come to the island where Ian's going to go hat in hand and sort of beg for a life raft or a job or even just a handout. You mentioned that Ian's something of a do-gooder, but his his sort of rebellion against his family has been it's rather self-indulgent, isn't it, shall we say? Mm, yeah. Well, his father's kind of like, um, well, actually, I think Ian's kind of self-indulgent. I think his father's kind of uh, one of those, like, um, mustering workhorses who only sees, like, you know, value in how much money you've made. So it's, I think Ian's sort of, you're right, like, his way of rebelling against his family was not to sort of succeed in business early, but to sort of try to find these altruistic means of helping people or helping the world. But in a really kind of comfortable way. I mean, I think it's a lot of it had to do with I remember when I went to school, like we all tried to help the world and we all thought we were Marxists, but we were really kind of doing like lazy social good. (laughs) We weren't like necessarily really making a huge impact on the world as much as we were hoping we would or could. And so he goes to Charlie to seek help. And he's got these vague plans of what he can do for Charlie's family, what he can do for the company. Right. 
but that's all really a fantasy, isn't it? That's not going to happen. No, I mean, I think he's really at his rope's end. I mean, you can argue, like, why doesn't he just get a job waiting tables? Because that's what I did, by the way, when I was, you know, right after college. But um, I think he's he's sort of on desperate ends and doesn't know what to do and doesn't want to... Uh, he, I mean, it would be nice. I think he thinks it would be nice to build some sort of altruistic platform with, his, with Charlie's father's company. But no, I, d- I don't think that's going to happen. And so... With Charlie's father's money would be more appropriate. Exactly. I mean, he's, he's all sort of like sort of pie in the sky-ish, right? Um, he doesn't really have, at, the, at once kind of practical and at the same time is filled with delusions, basically. And I think actually of anyone, I think Charlie is maybe the more sensible one of sort. Um, Charlie has started a boat company in Patmos, sort of like a, a small fledgling business of, of restoring yachts and running them out for summer season. And so that's what he kind of ends up inviting Ian to help with. I was I was just intrigued by the... I think you get to a certain age where you kind of look back at your childhood friends and you wonder about the relationships you had. You wonder if they were... You know, if, if people who knew you the longest know you the best or, in fact, if they don't really know you at all anymore because so much time has passed from your childhood. I think when you get to a certain age, you kind of reassess those experience, those early experiences and friendships, and you look, kind of look to them in this really idyllic way that maybe they really weren't. So I was kind of just intrigued by that idea of childhood friends and kind of returning to a childhood friend for help. So where does the uh, Constantinos money come from? They were, uh, they were sort of a construction empire that built uh, roads of the Middle East. So they're responsible for sort of city urban planning projects in uh, Middle Eastern countries, largely, um, which was very lucrative in the, you know, during the oil booms of mid 20th century, um, when all of these countries were sort of securing their infrastructure because of oil. So that's where their money comes from. And of course, they made a phenomenal amount of money. And did they, is it in the legal ways? Is it corrupt? You know, I, feel, I felt like it's really interesting how we sort of don't judge the children of the rich, or we sort of do. I mean, there's a way that, in which that we kind of feel like if you're living off of tainted money or money that was made ruthlessly, are you complicit? Or are you sort of saved because you're just a child of a, you know, a powerful oligarch or a family member who who made a lot of money and maybe ruthless practices? It's a weird relationship children of wealth have to money. And I think that might also have been the case before those children started broadcasting their lifestyles on Instagram accounts. Oh my God, I know. Well, I feel like a lot of the people who really have a lot of money don't do that and are really careful. I think there are, of course, like notoriously a lot of people who do sort of show off and are rich. But you kind of get this like, I also wanted to dispel this notion that like every rich people are really Trumpian or like they all love gold plating. I mean, I feel like a lot of a lot of old money or, you know, is actually like really tasteful. And that's that's not a judgment. It's just that I don't think, you know, I think a lot, we think of like rich people as being ornate or over the top or always like guzzling champagne and like wearing too many designers all at once. But, you know, I think that there's like all these different levels of wealth and, and spectacle. And a lot of, I think people have learned how to be, a lot of really rich people have learned how to do so kind of flying slightly under the radar. 
So there's a couple more characters that I, I wanted to, to mention. So Louise, first of all, who is another friend, but very much doesn't come from this same world. That Certainly not that Charlie does, but even that Ian does, does she? Right. No, she comes from uh, Kentucky, which is actually right across the river from where I grew up. So there, she has a certain kind of... I mean, that's what was kind of fun to play with with Ian was this idea of morality and ethics and can your attempts to do good get you into trouble or cause worse problems? Like, you know, I, I, didn't, I never want anything to be black and white or really easy. So Louise sort of has this moralism or this goodness about her that actually is, question, I find ultimately, is it questionable as like, is she a, a good person, even though she's a correct person? Or does she do the right does she do the right things, even though she's doing the right things according to, you know, how we're raised to believe in good? But yeah, she's not from wealth. I mean, she's sort of, you know, you need a character to, to pivot against the rest of it. And so she kind of can see really as an outsider um, this world and the sort of glaring ostentation of it and the indulgences. And I, she doesn't really have a, a stake in, in trying to get any of Charlie's money in a certain way. Which is rare because what's another interesting element I found in, in writing about wealth is how people who have a lot of money, especially children of, of wealth who have access to so much money, there's a sort of like weird micro economy built around them where a lot of people sort of live off of them and their bodies. So like you kind of have this circle around them of, of I mean, it is a little parasitic, but, you know, it just happens that way that, you know, people we all kind of make our money off of other people. So um, it's just a very direct way. And so she doesn't have that. She's truly an outsider in that sense. Well, the other character I wanted to talk about was Sonny, who is Charlie's partner, who is sort of, I guess, stuck between two worlds. She's been a Hollywood actress, so she's obviously been successful, but it seems like those days are in the past, and she's, like, in this sort of limbo. And you kind of wonder how successful she ever was, right? Like, she's... Uh... Indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she's, but you know, I think that there's that danger of when you, she's, you know, I would have loved to have made Charlie's girlfriend a sort of a brain surgeon or someone getting their PhD in, you know, nuclear fission. But that's not the kind of person that would date Charlie, you know? I mean, there's a certain kind of person that's going to do that. And Sunny really is, I mean, you know, just from witnessing these kind of relationships. I mean, she's like very charming and beautiful and clever and witty, but, you know, she's also, I don't know. I mean, I think it's really easy to classify her as someone who's just sort of sort of a gold digger in the classic sense or someone who's just like in it for his money or is, you know, dating a rich guy for money. And, and it's a little more complicated with her, I hope. Um, I tried to make, I liked her as a character because I think she's difficult. She's prickly and she has a kid, a child that she's from an earlier marriage that she's trying to get back from the husband or the, the father. And, uh, and so I needed to her, it couldn't just be this sort of token pretty girl i wanted her to have a lot of you know complex issues because i guess what we're what i what we haven't said which we can you know i always think of it as a a shocker in the book but it's actually written on the back cover is that charlie goes missing and so it kind of throws all of these people's worlds uh into disorder uh because he just vanishes and it puts it puts everyone at threat in different ways and so sunny is sort of relied on charlie and his money to to get her daughter back. And so she's also has so much to lose, you know, in this. 
Yeah, so I was going to say, so you you said before that you you know you don't you haven't written about people with this much money before, but the key thing about all of these characters is you know the key thing about money is money can be lost, and obviously Ian has been disinherited, so he's in a fragile position. Uh, Louise does not come from that world anyway. Sonny is in this sort of weird custody battle thing that means she's in that position. Obviously, Charlie goes missing, but that's also a a sort of metaphor for the money going missing, because Charlie himself is, he's the second son of this family. He's also in a, he's, you know, he's doing this business, which looks to the outside like he's actually doing some work, but his family see it as a frivolous thing. So he's also in a precarious position as well, regardless of the fact that he then subsequently goes missing. Yeah, I mean, he is sort of the representation of uh, money in itself and like that that it can be lost that quickly and it's so precarious and it's basically based on the whims of a person and you know there's nothing worse than you always feeling like you're auditioning for somebody right like and sometimes you can be in whole relationships like romantic relationships where you feel like you're never really comfortable like you're always sort of auditioning to stay in it and that's a terrible situation and I feel like in a lot of ways with maybe someone like whose wealth that you're depending on you're always maybe it's like having a job you know like you're always feeling like you have to work for it and that's actually kind of unfair maybe to Charlie I mean you know it's it's not always easy to be wealthy either I don't think we should pity the rich but certainly there's problems attached to it of are you genuinely interested in me do you genuinely love me but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny, like, um, Charlie's job is sort of like industrious self-delusion making, you know, like, it's, it's not really, he doesn't need to make money, he just needs to show that he's working for his family to continue to support him. And there's obviously a number of other characters in the book as well, and you know, there's some of the characters who are locals to the island, some of the people that work for Charlie and his father. And then there's this other couple of characters, uh, Razim and Adrian. Um, Razim's uh, a cousin of Charlie. Adrian's, he's seemingly even richer than Charlie's family lover. Whenever I describe this, I always feel like this book sounds so Danielle Steele when I describe it. But, <laughs> but it's, I swear it's not, or it wasn't in intended to be um it's definitely more patricia highsmith than daniel Steele. let's let's say that yeah that's good thank you well what i was going to say was with these two with razim and adrian because they're, they're a couple that made me think why are ian and charlie not a gay couple mm, i you know what i it's so interesting that you bring that up because i originally wanted to make ian gay but then speaking of patricia highsmith i was really worried it was going to fall into that subgenre of books where the gay man is envious of the straight guy and it's sort of like Ian is obsessed with Charlie and Charlie's wealth and Charlie's life and so I didn't really want to project that because I, I feel like that's a trope that's been kind of done and is kind of unfair to gay characters I should have you know if I went back in time it would have been interesting to make Charlie gay and that could have been interesting but I do think that there is a little bit of sexual tension between Charlie and Ian yeah I agree yeah I mean certainly yeah there are points in the book yeah and I think that that's male heterosexuality is much more homoerotic than we ever really mention or bring up in two 
straight men. I mean, like, if you think of, like, the sports and the locker rooms, and but also, like, your childhood friends, you have this weird bodily connection with. And I think it has to do with the fact that, like, for example, when you're a child, you put up signs saying, like, keep out, like, you're not allowed in my bedroom. Your siblings and your parents can't come into this private space, but then you can, you invite your best friend over, and they can, like, not only enter the room, but they sleep in the same bed as you, you know? I mean, like, there's this closeness of early friendships that I think is very physical and maybe a little bit sexual to a certain extent. So it didn't seem too off the mark to describe their relationship in sort of slightly sexual terms. I also just, of course, love the idea of, of things being hazy and unclear. So, does, you know, is Ian obsessed with Charlie sexually? Is is there some sort of, you know, fraught tension? So I like to keep those kind of going. to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Christopher Bolan, and we're talking about his latest novel, The Destroyers. And so, Chris, let's talk about Patmos, the place, for a bit. I can remember when we talked about Orient, asking you whether or not you were welcome back in Orient once the, uh, once the novel had been, uh, had been published. Are you going to go back to Patmos? Oh my gosh, yes. Because you know what? I think that I... I think with Orion, a lot of people read it and said, geez, that place sounds terrible. (laughs) What a nightmare. But I think a lot of people who've read The Destroyers feel like it made them want to go to Greece. So in a way, I feel like I 
described it. It's such a beautiful island. I mean, it's so insanely gorgeous and these rock beaches and it's really remote. It's really hard to get to Patmos. It takes eight hours on a ferry from Piraeus. But I think, I don't think that I stepped on too many hands and feet while writing this one. I hope not. Um, Apart from the monks, perhaps. Yeah, the monks might have me killed. That's true. And they do run the island. That was a lot of fun to write about. I I actually went three times to Patmos for research to do this book. So three summers in a row, I went. Each time I sort of dug into separate corners of the island. You know, once I lived way in the north where the cabins uh, that Ian and Louise live in, in the in the book, that's where I stayed. And it's really kind of rural and more the, the locals... And then there's Hora, which is near where the Cave of the Apocalypse is and where the monastery is. And that's much more social and like, you know, summer homes and uh, a lot of tourists and regulars sort of gather there. And uh, I even did this one thing that was really great. One night I needed, you know, I needed to know certain things that I'm just not really, I don't own a boat. I don't sail the Mediterranean regularly. So I didn't know, for example, how porous the border between Greece and Turkey was. As in, if you sail from Greece into Turkey or from Turkey into Greece, are there customs? Like, I had no idea. Like, do they check your boat when you go into Turkey? And so I, I mentioned this at a dinner one night in Hora, and there was this Italian billionaire across the dinner table from me who said, I don't know, but let's go tomorrow. We can take my yacht. So we all piled in at like 9 a.m. and uh, into this insane yacht and we sailed for four hours and we got to Bodrum. And sure enough, if you sail on like a really nice yacht, no one checks anything. You just sail right up to the dock and get off and go have lunch. So it was fun. I mean, that was a really great research and that was really helpful to me. So people were really nice. Uh, really accommodating when I went. And tell me something else about the the sort of Book of Revelations thing. So there's this cave where that was supposed to be written. What does it feel like? Oh my gosh, it's really amazing because it's not... You'd imagine that Disney would have gotten its hands on it or some other theme park and turned it into a real attraction. But it's really this... It's a sacred place. It's built... There's a chapel built on it. And you kind of go down these steps and you just enter this small hole. I mean, it's a chapel hole. And then half of it, the cave is, looks kind of church-like and it's very small. And the other half is just sort of built into rock as like a real cave. Um, It's just the way it kind of was, I'm sure, when John was purportedly there. And it's an eerie feeling. It's mostly eerie because it's so quiet and serene. It doesn't have, you know, like, if you think about all the things that we, you know, culturally to this day still use to represent destruction and the end of the world, like the four, you know, four horsemen, the beast with seven heads, the whore of Babylon, 666, like those are all from the book of Revelation. But it's just this very quiet, muted cave where it's, it's, it's really sort of beautiful and uh, peaceful and kind of frightening in the fact that it's not can't really get a reason you don't really understand why he envisioned these horrors of horrors in such a beautiful landscape but there is I will I will become I will sound like a crazy person but there is something really I mean I don't even really believe in like vibrations but there is something very bizarre about Patmos like there is a certain vibration you get when you're on that island that there's an energy or a current that feels a little funny and so it must attract, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a subplot about a group of hippies in the book, but I presume it, it does attract people that are attracted to places that have vibrations. Yeah, you know, there's a part in the book where someone 
um, t- tells a story of how someone had a dream and that they needed to move to Patmos. And then they went and moved there. And actually, when I was on the island, there were two or three different people who said that their neighbors had that very thing happen to them. Or they just like had visions. They uh, hadn't been to Patmos before and just went and you know picked up their lives and moved to this island. So it does attract extremely strange personalities to it. And, you know, it's funny because it's, you know, most islands in, in the in most Greek islands are all about antiquity. And, you know, this is where Leto lived, or this is where Apollo came down, or this is, you know, where Odysseus set sail. But this is like a, you know, a Christian island, which is like, you know, such a different tone. And so it's a lot of like new age spirituality. It's a lot of, I think, born agains come off season to go to that site. So yeah, it does attract a really kind of a weird audience. Pilgrimages, lots of pilgrimages to there. So we've been talking about the Destroyers and, as an extension, Patmos, the real Patmos, your own experience, as this, you know, a religious island, but also a holiday destination for rich Europeans and a place where the island itself has a lot of rich people. But the book itself is set both... And of course, when you were you were there researching it, one thing that's going on is the Greek Euro crisis. So there's a ma- massive financial crisis going on, and of course, there's an ongoing refugee crisis going on as well. So all the time, these you know rich people are going out on their yachts for champagne and sea urchin breakfasts. There are refugees and bodies washing up on the beaches. What was that like to experience when you were there? Well, most of the um, refugees don't get as far as Patmos because it is a little bit. F- most of them end up on like coasts, which is much closer to the, the Turkish coast. And so at Patmos, you don't really get too many refugees coming ashore, but you do get a few. You do get some. So it never, it, Patmos never became like the beaches right, I mean, the islands right by Turkey, where, you know, they were sort of devastated by this population of refugees that uh, that came, you know, and they had to figure out what to do. It was, it was, a, it was actually when I first went there, uh, or no, the second summer I went there was really the sort of head of the crisis um, in 2015. And uh, that also corresponded to the you're right the exact time that greece was suffering this insane are they going to leave the eu there was a vote against that people were lining up for cash to get try to get money out of cash machines that were basically empty um so there was like crisis on top of crisis and i didn't want it to overwhelm the book because i one i didn't know how it was going to turn out you know it's really hard to write in the moment of a a fiction book in the moment of crisis because you can't really see the future you can't really tell which way it's going to go or what's going to happen i couldn't even you know at that in the middle of writing it i didn't even know if greece was going to stay in the eurozone or not but i did i did think it was important to kind of use that the the idea of this extreme luxury and extreme vacationing and extreme boats and money and privilege is just like exactly right next to people who are just sort of so desperate. They're swimming for their lives with only the shirts on their back. And to me, that was seemed, sadly, it seemed very much concurrent with the symbolism that's in the book of Revelation. I mean, John would have loved that pile up because that's exactly what he was describing, like a world that had gone mad where there was so much sinfulness and indulgence next to people who had so little. And, you know, so... It kind of was mirroring. That experience was just so odd. And, you know, vacations are such weird pockets of privilege. 
And you always feel like a little bit, if you think hard enough about it, I mean, how does, like, you feel a little bit disgusting for, you know, getting a massage and, and, you know, spending the afternoon drinking white wine while people are starving or, you know, people right next to you are in terrible trouble. So I feel like there's always this sort of like, you know, crazy guilt and despair attached to vacations a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Indeed. Yeah. No, absolutely. All right. Well, that sort of brings us to the, to the end of my questions. And I completely forgot to ask you at the beginning if you'd read a bit, but would you read a bit? Okay, so this is just a a short part of chapter two, and this is sort of sets up the difference between Charlie's family and Ian's family. Um, And this sort of starts in in New York. Um, That's where they grew up. And this sort of just sets the tone of their relationship. I've never known the specifics of Charlie's family's wealth, like pools or country houses or fathers with healthy, poorly hidden porn collections. Money was just a condition that some kids had and others didn't. That's not to say I didn't realize early on that the Constantino fortune trumped my own, that I was a votive candle set beside a bonfire. Their residence was a labyrinthine, low-ceiling duplex on the 48th floor of 5th Avenue and West 59th Street, its brown-tinted windows glazing all of Manhattan with a high-desert varnish. The front rooms were rearranged and redecorated with the same seasonal restlessness as their corner view of Central Park. Flocked wallpaper gave way to raw muslin. Oily Regency chairs lost favor to skeleton Italian minimalism. The only permanent decor was a collection of tiny silver-framed pictures of skinny children and overfed dogs. Charlie's family had staff, real staff, housekeepers and au pairs and drivers and a Portuguese chef who, for reasons unclear, insisted on buying meat at a certain kosher butcher. Orders were relayed in subtle and scrutable eye movements. During my visits, there was always someone dressed in unobtrusive black to provide drinks or snacks or movie times or alibis for Charlie's older brother, Stefan, who was more of a constant point of conversation than an actual presence in the house. Meanwhile, my mother and I, living post-divorce in a garden apartment on Riverside Drive, had a pudgy Peruvian cleaner who would come for three hours every Tuesday, but grudgingly paid for by my father. When I phoned Charlie, there was little chance he'd be the one to answer. This is a rare kind of New York home that took five minutes of waiting on the other end for him to be tracked down. When he called me, I was right on the line 90% of the time, turning hello into a life-and-death question. We were all spoiled kids, no question. Whatever dim connection Buckland Academy maintained to its Protestant roots reminded us that we were all born with unfair advantage. Some of us were just more spoiled. I knew even at age nine that Charlie's money was the kind generated from larger reserves than baby food. It was a strange pocket of America in which I was raised. Children whose ancestors reached the shores of this country already loaded. The Bledsoe's are a Michigan breed, devoutly modest and thrifty, proud of owning our own snow shovels. My family goes back several Midwestern generations, but we were first-generation millionaires. My father despised ostentation whenever he encountered it, especially in his son. He was a New Yorker by trade and not by social observance. The Constantinos, on the other hand, seemed to revel in their fortune. Trips to Biarritz or St. Bart's or Greece or Palm Beach were treated as migratory necessities rather than as vacations, something one couldn't not do. And there was always a new cause or artist or wetland they were subsidizing with the giddy thrill of an illicit romance. I grew up alongside Charlie's wealth. I made a second home in it. And like anything introduced so young, I never really questioned its source. Both of our fathers were businessmen focused on the global economy, which is similar to calling them sharpshooters. 
a designation that didn't lend itself to particulars. So I've been talking to Christopher Bolan. We've been talking about his latest novel, The Destroyers, which is out in the UK from Scribner. Chris, thank you so much for coming and telling us about it again. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I love being on here. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.